Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for various types and stages of cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about cognitive decline after prostate cancer with Dr. Herta Chow. Dr. Chow is the Deputy Director at the VA Comprehensive Cancer Center and an Associate Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a Professor of Surgical Oncology. So, Herta, you work at the VA. Um, tell us a little bit about the VA and about cancer services um, at the VA. So I feel very fortunate to work at the West Haven VA Cancer Center because it's so closely affiliated with the Yale Cancer Center. We basically can uh, take advantage of a lot of the knowledge and expertise and uh, resources that are available at Yale Cancer Center as well. One of the uh, particularly uh, important things for the VA is that we're a tertiary center and uh, many resources are there available that are actually uh, not necessarily available in the private se- sector. For instance, if um, veterans need uh, transportation, we can actually ask our social worker to help. If a veteran needs additional support and therapy, we can actually ask the physical therapist to meet them in the cancer center. So, um, so it's actually very, very tailored to veterans. Uh, tell us a little bit about... Um, you know, when we think about cancer, we kind of think of it ubiquitously, but um, tell us about the prevalence of cancer in the veteran population and whether the the incidence of cancers and particular kinds of cancers are different in the veteran population as opposed to the general population. Yes, uh, that's a very, very important point and very uh, 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 good question. So um, I think we continue to learn. For many decades, it was actually uh, debated whether certain cancers are really related to herbicide like Agent Orange. We know that Agent Orange was widely used during the Vietnam War, and uh, many veterans uh, really succumbed, uh, developed cancers that are unusually aggressive, uh, unusually early in their uh, lifetime. And um, it took many decades before it was recognized that Agent Orange is a carcinogen. So, for instance, I think uh, soft tissue sarcoma, which is a connective tissue cancer, occurs early in our lifetime. It was uh, recognized earlier that this is probably related, that Agent Orange exposure has increased the risk of these veterans to develop these cancers. Prostate cancer, for instance, is so common among men, the most frequent cancer in among veterans. But for the many decades, it was actually not acknowledged to be Agent Orange-related. Not until in 2008, there was a very important study done by Dr. Karim Shami at UCLA that actually proved showed that the incidence, the the rate of prostate cancer and the aggressiveness of prostate cancer was much, much higher in the veterans that were exposed to Agent Orange compared to veterans during the same era but not exposed to Agent Orange. 
So we we know more and more that uh, veterans may be at risk due to uh, service-related exposures to certain type of cancer, including lung cancer, prostate cancer, leukemia, uh, lymphomas. So these days, uh, for men and women who are in combat, a lot of times we don't think about um, people using uh, particular agents like Agent Orange uh, in combat, Um, but more so that it's more uh, artillery, there's more, um, you know, uh, roadside bombs and so on and so forth. Um, Are those also associated with a higher risk of cancers? I think we will find out very soon. Unfortunately, um, I... um my colleagues and myself have been uh, uh, really been um, unpleasantly surprised about how many aggressive cases of cancers we see in very young veterans, like in the 40s and the 50s, and uh, and a whole variety of different type of cancer, not just one specific cancer. And uh, but the common uh, uh, threat of the story is really they were exposed to the burn pits, where uh, apparently uh, many um, things were burned, uh, including uh, um, what I was told uh, uh, equipment that uh, uh, wanted to be destroyed, and and so there were many toxic exposure, and. I fear and I believe it will be true that we will see many other risk factors for different type of malignancies. Yeah. And certainly, I mean, I don't know whether we still see uh, veterans who were exposed to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, but radiation also can expose you to a variety of malignancies too, right? Absolutely. Um, In fact, (laughs) I think I can talk about this because one of my veterans really wanted to um, raise more awareness, and he he and his wife really wanted wanted publicly that we speak more about it. So he was actually exposed, not during wartime, during uh, regular service uh, uh, to radiation in the the nuclear-powered submarines. And unfortunately, um, he was in very close proximity to it. And uh, unfortunately, he now deals with very aggressive cancer that uh, we're fortunately able to control with chemotherapy. But it does look like he will be on chemotherapy probably for the rest of his life. What about other agents? Do we have any idea about the carcinogenic potential of things like tear gas, which is commonly used in both, I guess, both in combat and in, in civilian um, crowd control? I think, um, I think you, I'm not an expert in this regard, so I'd, uh, I have to apologize that I can't answer this question uh, correctly, uh, I fear. But uh, I do think that we have to be aware about all the herbicides we're using still commercially and also in the private sector that 
I believe is under-recognized that uh, these can be carcinogens. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, so certainly there are a whole host of exposures that are unique to veterans and to our military families. And we have to remember that people are people um, uh, as well. And so cancer is not uncommon, uh, even in the general public. And so um, when you are seeing patients at the VA, you're seeing people who may be at increased risk because of their military service. Um, but you're also seeing people who are just diagnosed with cancers that um, they would get as part of the general population as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we serve all veterans, whether they have been in combat or, or not, and it, uh, if they um, fulfill the criteria to receive care at the VA, we will absolutely see all uh, uh, veterans that uh, are eligible for VA health care. So it's uh, t- true. We will also see uh, the cancers that are uh, not really to service connection, and uh, um, and we, we will treat, uh, treat uh, 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 these veterans as uh, much as we, we can do. And uh, one of the benefits for me to work being an oncologist at the VA is that um, I have many other uh, uh, people helping me with with their care. Uh, one of the things that uh, I do not miss is the billing issues and medication issues. I mean, as as you know, Dr. Chakbar, there there's so many very very expensive uh, cancer medications. In fact, we see really a, like a stream of new patients into the VA because of the very, very expensive drug prices. And uh, any veteran that finds out that they can probably get these medication for $9 copay at the VA a month will come to the VA. <laughs> and so just um, for for those who may or may not know, if you are a veteran, um, can you get coverage through the VA for your family, your spouse, and your children as well? So that's a very interesting uh, question. I asked the, uh, the, the social worker all the time, and it turns out that uh, spouses of 100% service-connected veteran are eligible to get care at the VA until they meet, meet Medicare age. Um, I believe that the uh, children are not necessarily, but I think think there might be other mechanisms to take care of the uh, children of veterans, but the spouses uh, of 100% service-connected veteran are eligible for care at the VA. What does 100% service connection mean? It means that uh, these veterans have a condition that uh, disables them, and that's originated during the time of the military service. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... As you see patients uh, with all kinds of cancers and you treat them um, at the VA, are there particular things that um, uh, you're thinking about in terms of their treatment, in terms of side effects and so on, um, that may be of particular concern to veterans? So um, I think um, there are are several things that we do have to consider uh, and That is, uh, for instance, uh, service-connected post-traumatic stress disorder. We um, unfortunately take care of a fair number of veterans that suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. And uh, one of the things that we um, have to be aware of is um, 
sometimes when the cancer treatment itself causes stress, mm -hmm. some of the post PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms can flare up. And that is the reason why we uh, uh, really, right from the beginning, even before we start treatment, we actually frequently have palliative care and the health psychology team, in addition to psychiatry, if necessary, be involved in the uh, multidisciplinary management of the patient. For instance, uh, when, patient, when our veterans have to undergo complicated cancer surgery, there is actually a service for elderly veterans where the, uh, uh, it's called Champions, where the, uh, uh, the geriatrician and the psychologist are involved before even the surgery and really prepare the patients well for the surgery and follows them all along through the hospitalization and after discharge. Yeah, because I can imagine that for any patient, you know, cancer is a big diagnosis. It's a scary diagnosis. Um, but for veterans, uh, it may be uh, even more so uh, that it kind of adds to the stress that they've already gone through. Absolutely. And uh, that is uh, one of the things where we are incredibly grateful at the, uh, uh, at the VA Connecticut. We actually, over the years, we have developed like a cancer care coordination uh, um, system that where the cancer care coordinator actually tracks uh, patients uh, uh, that may uh, may develop may have cancer, but it's still in the workup, and uh, uh, the primary care physician or any provider can consult the cancer care coordination team to try to expedite the workup and navigate, be a navigator for the patients going through the treatment. Yeah, that's so important. We're going to talk a lot more about uh, cancer treatment and the side effects in our veterans right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about smoking cessation. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine, but it's a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies, and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers and operate on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service Clinical Practice Guidelines. All treatment components are evidence-based and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications for smoking cessation, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Herta Chow. We're talking about uh, cancer, particularly in veterans. And right before the break, Herta, you were telling me about, you know, the really fabulous services that the VA offers veterans who are diagnosed with cancer, a, you know, really comprehensive uh, approach, a multidisciplinary approach with social work, with geriatricians, with psychologists and psychiatrists. Um, 
to really provide the best treatment uh, to veterans facing cancer because many of these veterans may face an increased risk of cancer due to military-based exposure. The other thing that I think a lot of people may not know about the VA is that the VA actually supports a lot of research in the area of cancer. Can you talk a little bit about the DOD, the Department of Defense, and um, the support that it provides for uh, research into cancer? Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, so there are several mechanisms at the VA to apply for funding for uh, research in uh, uh, veterans, including veterans with cancer. Uh, one is the DOD, Department of Defense, has several grant mechanisms in many different cancers, uh, including prostate cancer, lung cancer, breast cancer. There's another mechanism that's called VA Merit, uh, which is the kind of uh, internally within the VA you can apply for funding to conduct research. And obviously there are other like National Institute, uh, uh, the uh, Institute of Health uh, sponsored uh, uh, grants that uh, 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 physicians and researchers at the VA can apply to. So I certainly benefited from these grant mechanisms. Um, one of the um, my research interests, in addition to conducting clinical trials at the VA and making clinical trials accessible for veterans is uh, to look at the potential cognitive side effects and toxicity of prostate cancer treatment with hormonal therapy. And this actually was not something that I thought about. This was prompted by one of my uh, patients who uh, is a uh, decorated uh, Vietnam War veteran and um, he developed uh, aggressive prostate cancer at a fairly young age. He was just in his early 60s when um, uh, he was diagnosed with metastatic uh, Gleason 8 prostate cancer. And uh, he was diagnosed in the private sector and then found out that he was eligible for the VA benefits and came to the VA and uh, participated in several studies Finally, after three years taking care of him, and his, his prostate cancer was beautifully controlled, he uh, finally told me, Herda, I'm, I don't want to be ungrateful, but I think these hormone shots are frying my brain. And I paused. I said, like, what do you mean? And he said, like, well, you know, I'm been busy all my life. I can multitask. I can do so many things. But since I started the hormone shot, I really think I have to write down the 10 things I want to do within the next hour. And that's not me. I usually can think of multiple things and I can get everything done. But now I feel like I have to write down and remind myself what I want to do. So then I thought, oh, that's easy. I refer you to the health uh, to, for, for neurocognitive testing. And it turns out that he scored beautifully. He, there was no deficit that we could find on uh, uh, regular neurocognitive testing. And then I started looking into it. And I started like, well, it's, it's very, um, uh, it's still not well understood what uh, hormonal therapy for prostate cancer can do the, to the brain. I think that the breast uh, cancer 
uh, uh, experts are way ahead. I mean, the, the recognition that chemotherapy or hormonal therapy for breast cancer has been uh, for many years already suspected, and many studies actually support the uh, uh, the the um, suspicion that uh, chemotherapy and hormonal therapy for breast cancer can cause chemo fog or chemo brain. It's not as well understood in uh, prostate cancer. So uh, uh, around like 2008, 2009, I started looking into that. And the interesting part is that it's not very easy to characterize these uh, impact of uh, hormone shots for prostate cancer, the effects on the brain. Um, if you do regular testing, neurocognitive testing, whether it's uh, paper or pencil or whether it's on a computer, we have to be aware that there's a certain amount of practice effect. So if you do it every three months, if you do it every six months, you know what to expect to do in the test. So your test score may actually hold, hold up despite the fact there might be a deficit. Um, and, uh, and that is probably true for many, many patients. Um, that is uh, what prompted me to think about what do other people do to study effects of the of uh, of anything in the brain, whether it's uh, depression, whether it's uh, dementia, whether it's uh, uh, psychiatric illnesses. So that's the reason why I approach uh, uh, my colleagues at the Yale uh, Medical School in psychiatry that are involved in functional brain imaging to see whether or not hormone therapy can affect. Uh, functional brain imaging. And so just to clarify, what are these hormone shots that you're giving for prostate cancer? What what exactly is that? Because when we talk about uh, hormonal therapy or endocrine therapy in breast cancer, that's often a pill. Is it the same kind of thing? Um, uh, it's uh, uh, not exactly the same because we uh, know um, that uh, if we just use a pill form like something called bicalutamide, which is a uh, testosterone receptor blocker, it usually is not sufficient to suppress the effects on the prostate cancer cells. So usually uh, um, men in both prostate cancer need to get something called uh, luprolide, which is, a, uh, um, which is a, uh, I'm going to use the technical term, uh, LHRH uh, agonist that can shut down the testosterone production uh, in, uh, in, in, in a patient's body. So, um, and we used uh, these shots to cause uh, the uh, the. Uh, the testicles and also the remainder of the body to turn off testosterone production. Because I think it, it's interesting. So, so the key point being that the pills that many breast cancer patients take for five or 10 years um, is different than these shots that men get for prostate cancer, especially advanced prostate cancer. They work through different mechanisms. They have different um, 
uh, targets, as it were. And so the side effects are, are pretty different. So many women, while it's true that with chemotherapy, they certainly can get chemo brain or chemo fog, it's a little less common uh, for women taking endocrine therapy, something like tamoxifen uh, or some of the aromatase inhibitors. So how common is it um, that people can get this this chemo brain or chemo fog or this cognitive decline when taking an LHRH agonist for prostate cancer? I think that's a very hot uh, topic right now in prostate cancer research. Uh, I think for the longest time, and I would say like uh, I probably like the, uh, the me 10 years ago was equally guilty. We... I, Underrecognize the potential uh, effect on the on the brain, and we really just focus on like uh, how to control cancer because as oncologists we want to control cancer. Um, now I think we have to recognize there's so many different treatments. That's the exciting part about being cancer doctor nowadays. There's so many different treatments, and that you can treat uh, cancer so many different ways. That I think it's actually very important to know what each treatment could cause in terms of side effects, whether it's inside the body or whether it's inside the brain. And so, so was the um, what did you find with the functional imaging study that you did? So, so right now, it's still a very active uh, 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 ongoing study. We're trying to right now look at uh, the uh, effect of uh, lowering the testosterone level, what we call androgen deprivation, what it does over two years. My uh, original pilot study that only uh, investigated the effects on uh, in 30 veterans, 15 with uh, luprolite injection and 15 as uh, control that uh, underwent surgery or just radiation alone, um, actually showed that the neurocognitive testing was the same. People scored the same. But when you look at the functional brain imaging, just six months of hormone therapy for prostate cancer completely changed the way the brain is, uh, shows activation. What does this mean? That's something I think I need to find out. Um, but it was uh, uh, very striking and and to be honest, I was a bit surprised because I initially thought, like, if the neurocognitive test scores are the same, why should the uh, brain MRI be different? And um, so I was educated that it can be different, and uh, apparently in other disease processes, it can be different too. We did, uh, thanks to thanks to uh, the support of uh, pilot studies through the Yale Cancer Center, through through uh, Dr. Herbs uh, 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 being supportive of this uh, project, we were able to do additional study, additional analysis of in these thirty patients. It actually turns out that certain circuits that are connecting different brain areas to process things seem to be affected by hormone therapy for prostate cancer. So I suspect that uh, uh, the, the longer we uh, give somebody hormone therapy for prostate cancer, the more effects we can see. Um, now, I think... 
that being said, I don't want to create any fear among patients to get hormone therapy. I think it's a very, very important treatment for prostate cancer, especially for stage four prostate cancer. And I think this is actually part like about the cognitive side effects of hormone therapy. That's something we need to study. And I believe it, not everybody is vulnerable to it. There, there, there are certain individual vulnerability that we have to identify and study. Yeah, so that was going to be one of my questions, was that in that functional MRI study where you had, you know, some patients who had the LHRH agonist therapy and some patients who didn't, and you found that there was a difference in the functional brain imaging between the two groups, was were all of the patients who uh, had the LHRH agonist therapy still thinking that the hormones were frying their brain, or were some of them quite functional? I I would say some of them were quite functional, and uh, and that that is the reason why I was surprised to find on their brain imaging study that there there are still changes, and and some of the you, you they would complaining of maybe hot flashes. So I think frequently we say like oh the the maybe you feel more fatigued because of hot flashes that you can get with the those allergic allerg- agonists. Or uh, whether there could be like some uh, component of depression affecting your cognitive function, but I think that's the reason why it's actually important to have something um, that's not very not not just subjective. It's actually fairly objective for uh, the for the um, uh, for the patients to see. Actually, on brain imaging, there are changes. And the thing is, like, while this is all still very much a topic of research, for my patients, for my patient, who the, the original one who actually complained to me about the, it was very, um, very comforting, actually, to know that it's not just in his mind. It is actually something that we can see. Dr. Herta Chow is the Deputy Director at the VA Comprehensive Cancer Center and an Associate Professor of Medicine and Medical Oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers@yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.